This morning, we're back in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Suffering Servant. And I've broken up this passage into two parts, so today we will cover part one. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Our scripture reading this morning in 1 Samuel, we saw David and Saul, and where Saul was starting to turn against David and planning his demise. And we know as the story continues in 1 Samuel that David had opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, and yet he chose not to. Saul was his king, and David honored him in that regard. And though Saul was chasing him, David did not raise a hand against him and kill him. David showed that honor and respect to his superior, to one who had authority over him. David trusted in the Lord, knowing that he would be king. He trusted in the Lord. Just a very relevant kind of story with what we're looking at today as we continue also looking at submission here. So 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse or sorry 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 18 Servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We continue to look at the topic of submission in our text this morning. And as I said, I've broken this section up. And today we'll be covering verses 18 to 23. And having looked in depth at the subject of Christian submission to governing authorities in our last sermon from the book of First Peter, which was a while back already, we saw that the importance that God places on societal structures of authority that He has put in place And the expectation that Peter has that Christians submit and recognize these structures and live their lives accordingly within this hierarchy that God has instituted. We also saw that it is not a call for blind submission, so to speak, but rather a recognition that submission will not always be to our temporal favor. There could be consequences and there often will be consequences. But as our ultimate submission is always to God first, and this will often place us as Christians at odds with the world and the expectations produced by godless leaders and systems. 
We must therefore learn to recognize the when, the how, and the where that the imperative to submit carries within the revealed will of God. And through proper exegetical treatment of these texts, we strive to submit all the while honoring God first in all that we do. Our text this morning brings us from submission to governing authorities to submission to earthly earthly masters. Those who hold a position of authority over us, and specifically in our workplaces. Even though, as with governing authorities, submission to earthly masters may often result in mistreatment, persecution, and suffering, as we will see, and as we did see in our text. Juan Sanchez, on this passage in his commentary, notes that many of us have been brought up with And have bought into the notion that if we just live righteous lives, going to church, reading our Bibles, giving generously, we will not suffer. Righteousness and suffering are incompatible. The answer to the latter is to have more of the former. So if we suffer, the more righteousness we have, the less we should be suffering. That's the idea that he's talking about here that many have bought into. This means that we have no theological, sorry, this means that we have no theological category for righteous suffering and no idea how to endure it. We don't understand that righteousness can and does lead to suffering. The more of the former we have, the more of the latter we will face. It is this corrective that Peter gives us here. And as we'll see, only when we embrace a theology of righteous suffering that is rooted in the gospel Will we be able to prepare ourselves for such eventualities and endure suffering when it comes? End quote. Submission and suffering seem to have a very common correlation in Peter's epistle. But we will continue to see how Christ's example of submission and suffering as the ultimate suffering servant sets a guideline for Christians to follow and sets the believer's hope on the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to our salvation. As mentioned earlier, I've divided this text into two sections, and we will look at two realities this morning, two realities of Christian suffering. The first one, we are to be suffering for Christ. Suffering for Christ is point one, and that'll be in verses 18 to 20. And then in verses 21 to 23, Suffering as Christ. So first we will be suffering for Christ, and then suffering as Christ. So again, our text, chapter 2 of 1 Peter 18-20, to Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter begins this section with servants, be subject to your masters. The title servants comes from a Greek word meaning a household servant or slave. But we need to recognize that Peter is writing in the first century context. 
When we think of slavery, we think of men, women, and children being kidnapped, then bought and sold as personal property. They were mistreated, abused, often killed. This was a cruel and evil treatment. And this is not the same context that Peter is writing into. The Roman Empire, during the first century, slavery was different. Slaves were often well-educated. They sometimes served as physicians or tutors to children. And though it was still very difficult, they had the opportunity to buy their freedom. Many slaves were in that position to work off debts owed. There were different reasons for it, and it was still a hard life. And there was still often mistreatment. And still the life of a servant or a slave was very difficult. Field slaves worked extremely hard. And household slaves lacked many, many freedoms. Many slaves were still mistreated and suffered unjustly at the hands of their masters. This is what Peter's addressing here. Daniel Doriani in his expository commentary on 1 Peter states, American slavery was worse than Roman slavery in many ways. Roman slaves could own property and follow their own traditions. Although a slave's life expectancy was short, Many slaves gained their freedom eventually. American slavery was race-based and had limited paths to freedom and rested on kidnapping, which itself is a sin and a capital crime. In Moses' law, Exodus 21.16, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. While the Mosaic law tolerated slavery, it regulated potential abuses. For example, if a master so struck a slave as to cause major injury, the slave went free. Exodus 21, verses 26 to 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. The law also had several paths to manumission, meaning a release from slavery. For example, all slaves normally went free every seventh calendar year. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And end this Doriani's quote with, with this. Deuteronomy chapter 15 starting in verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him with liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this, therefore I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, Then you shall take an awl 
and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So we see in many cases slaves were treated well, they were taken care of, And as it says in verse 16, the slave didn't even want to leave the house since he is well off with you. So it's a different overall concept of slavery than probably what we would mostly think of when we think of slavery because of what we have read in history books and often see through racist, racial slavery and those reasons, which we know is sin. But likewise, Roman slaves during the time of Peter's writing, also had several paths to freedom, and it would have been different. So we have to keep this in mind when we think of, when we read these verses, servants or slaves to be subject to your masters. Servants were, sorry, so Peter tells the servants or slaves of his day to be subject to their masters. He is not blessing or endorsing slavery but rather he is addressing these servants as Christians, how they are to live within the existing societal hierarchy systems in which they found themselves in. So again, Peter is not endorsing slavery. He is not saying it is a good thing, but he is teaching these servants how to live within this system that they found themselves in. And he says, servants were to be subject to their masters with all respect. That is without bitterness, without negativity, but with honor. Submitting to them as their superiors, as those who had authority over them, and not only to the good and gentle, Peter says, but also to the unjust. So we see a sharp contrast here that Peter is outlining here. It is not only to the good masters, not only to the one who is kind, who is gentle, that the servants were to be willfully submitting to and serving respectfully, but specifically, Peter saying, to the unjust. To the unjust. And that is the picture and illustration that he is drawing for us as we move further in this text and we see Jesus as the suffering servant. All of Christ's suffering was at the hand of unjust and lawless men. And so we see this build up and we have, so we recognize because of what Christ endured, Peter is telling servants and he's able to tell servants to respectfully submit to their masters, even to those who are unjust. The servant was called not only to be submissive to the kind master, but as we mentioned, also to the unjust, the unfair, and often a cruel master. Peter contrasts the good and gentle with the unjust masters that would have existed in his time as they do today. But we see that his focus of this instruction is on the unjust master and the suffering that submission to such would produce. So Peter isn't addressing in this in our text this morning, he's not addressing the master's treatment of the servants. We see other teaching in Scripture regarding that and how masters are to treat their servants. But rather the focus is on the servant. 
The focus is on the one who is being mistreated. And that is the thought that we take into this text. How are we to respond? The focus of this instruction is on the unjust master and the suffering that submission to such a master would produce. To submit to the good and gentle master would be easy. Peter is emphasizing the necessity for servants to submit to the cruel master, which again produces suffering. Verse 19 in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we see the emphasis on the unjust master and the unjust treatment of the servant and the suffering that this produced in the lives of the servant. As Christians, we have freedom in Christ. Yet we, we have been set free to a new kind of bondage. That may sound like it doesn't work, like it's a contradiction. Well, let's think through that a little bit. As Christians, we've been set free in Christ, but we've been set free from bondage to sin and Satan. We've been set free from that into a new kind of bondage. Now, we are still considered slaves, but slaves to Christ, slaves to God. Humanity is never a fully autonomously free being. We are either slaves to sin and Satan. And as John says in chapter 8, verse 44 of his gospel, that we are of our father the devil, and our will is to do his desires. We're ensnared by sin and Satan, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So we've been set free from that, but we've been placed into a new bondage. So often when we read this as servants and slaves, and, and that mindset would have been pre- uh, prevalent during the time that Peter's writing as well, where this teaching of freedom is, is taught to the servants, is taught to the slaves, and we th- see in the scriptures, a lot of the new converts when the f- church was first started were servants, were slaves. And they're being told that they've been set free in Christ And we can well assume that this would have often led to a mindset then of maybe rebellion against masters, rebellion against governing authorities, rebellion against their uh, earthly masters in the workplace. And so Peter is addressing that as he did with governing authorities. We are still to be subject within the parameters of God's word. We are to be subject to governing authorities. And likewise to these servants they are to be subject to their masters. And this would have caused a conflict in the early church as well, for as they are becoming saved, and some of them probably would have served in elder roles, in leadership roles in the early church. And so some of them would have been a slave to their master at home, but an elder with spiritual authority over their master in the church. So we see there's the potential of the confusion there and the conflict that was there. And so Peter is addressing into that, or he, he's speaking into to that and addressing that situation for the servants. Though you are free in Christ, still be submissive and be subject to your masters here on earth. 
Because though through Christ we have freedom from sin and slavery, uh, sin and Satan, our freedom in Christ also makes us a slave to God. And it seems like it's a, it's a contradiction and it seems like it doesn't work together, but it's something that, well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and reading to verse 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So in the sight of God, Paul is saying, there is no difference between a Christian who is a servant, and a Christian who is the servant's master. But within the societal structure of, and hierarchy that exists on this earth, God, Paul and Peter both are calling servants to be obedient and submissive to their masters. The same way, he says, as you would to Christ. The same way as we would to Christ. So likewise, as servants, employees are to submit to their employers in the workplace as though they were serving Christ himself. Because as Peter says in verse 19, there is a gracious, this, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So when we suffer, Unjustly, we are suffering for Christ. We are doing it as though we are serving Christ. We are to be joyful and be submissive and subject to our masters as though we are subjecting to Christ. Because we are still slaves to Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. So we have moved from one bondage to the next. But the new bondage, the one that places us in Christ, is ultimately our freedom. It is that which saves us from damnation. It is that which saves us from the penalty of sin that we are enslaved to. And because of that, again, we are servants of Christ first and foremost. And then we are servants of man in our workplaces, in institutions of this world. Peter says, when we suffer unjustly, it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows. To be mindful of God 
as Peter, uh, Peter says in verse 19, means to consider who God is and all that He has done for us. Who God is and all He has done for us, being mindful of God while we endure and while we face sorrows as a result of unjust suffering. Greg Forbes in his exegetical guide to the new to the Greek New Testament commentary on 1 Peter says regarding verse 19. Up until this point in this letter, Peter has been focusing first of all on the graciousness of God in granting new birth, a living hope, redemption, and the privilege of being called his very own people. And second, on God's will for appropriate conduct in pagan society. Now he is exhorting his readers to exhibit appropriate behavior based on both of these aspects. So the focus is not so much on a godly conscience, but on appropriate behavior based on an awareness of all that God has done and all that he requires. End quote. This is what Peter says is a gracious thing. When we are mindful of God in this way, and because of that we can endure sorrows, We are mindful of God, all that He has done, all that He has accomplished on our behalf. And as I read in this quote, that is what Peter reminded us in the early parts of this uh, letter. God's redemption, His salvation, our living hope, these things, and He helps us to focus our, our attention on that, helps us to zone in and hone in our eyes to this hope that we have in Christ. And though much of this letter deals with suffering, this foundation has been set of what God has done for us. And this is what it means to be mindful of God during these hard times. To be mindful of God. And because of that, we can endure these sorrows. Because we remember what God has done. Because we remember what Christ has done and what He has freed us from and placed us into Him. Because of the penalty He paid for our sins. To remember that and to be mindful of that helps us to endure our own sorrows. This speaks of griefs and afflictions while suffering unjustly. He then goes on to elaborate on this point. For what credit is it, verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter makes it clear, the suffering he is addressing and commending is unjust suffering. Not discipline one might receive for bad behavior, rebellion, or bad workmanship, but rather when mindful of God, the servant lives faithful to God and is punished or afflicted for it, first and foremost, we must always remember that we seek approval from God, not of man. And so being a servant of God, it will put us 
in, into conflict with this world systems, with often situations that happen in our workplaces, that happen in society around us. And because as Christians, our aim first and foremost is we seek to please God, that conflict can sometimes produce persecution. It can produce suffering, mistreatment. But still, we seek to please God first rather than man. Peter makes it very clear in verse 20. The focus is on suffering due to unjust treatment. Not, as he says, when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure, what credit is that? Not where we have maybe responded or done something in a wrong manner and faced the result resulting that we face discipline. That is not what he is addressing here, and he makes it very clear. The focus is on the unjust suffering. As Christ suffered unjustly, likewise, that is his focus for us. First Peter chapter 4, just a few chapters further, verse 12 to the end of the chapter reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As Christians, we are called to live, work, and serve in all things as unto the Lord. In all that we do, we are to do that as unto the Lord, including our suffering. We are suffering for Christ. We are suffering for the sake of Christ. We are suffering for the name of Christ. This dedication to our new master will result in persecution and suffering as we have seen multiple times so far in our study of 1 Peter, in the first few chapters. And we will continue to see this throughout this letter. And in this sense, when Christians suffer for doing good, we are suffering for Christ. And this thought should motivate us to look to Him, to sustain us in our every need while enduring such suffering, 
and seek to always imitate him in the example that he has left us. This leads us to our next point, suffering as Christ. Suffering as Christ. Not that we are Christ, but suffering as Christ did. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21-23 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter begins this section in verse 21 by stating, For to this you have been called. To this you have been called. What is this referring to? To what have Christian servants been called? Here he is referring to the unjust suffering that Christian slaves faced at the hands of their masters. The cruelty many of them would have had to endure graciously for the sake of Christ. To this you have been called. We have been called to unjust suffering in order to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Peter says, we've been called, to this we have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The word example here is a word that refers to a stencil that children would have used to learn to write. A letter, a pattern, something that children would have been able to trace in learning how to write. And that is what that word example refers to. As Christians, we are called to trace then Jesus' footsteps. As Sanchez states in his commentary, where Jesus stepped, we step. And his steps take us through the path of unjust suffering. End quote. Peter teaches here that the purpose of Christ's example is for us to imitate him. We are to imitate Christ, how he reacted to unjust suffering as the God-man on this earth. Unjust suffering is not a sign that we have done something wrong, or that God is somehow not in control, or that he has failed us in any way. We know that's not true. Rather, the New Testament is clear that for those who desire to follow Jesus and pursue holiness, suffering will be a reality in this life. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Tracing Jesus' footsteps, being a true follower of Christ, will lead to unjust suffering for Christians. We're to take up our cross and follow Christ. We're literally to be willing to give up our life for the sake of Christ. 
That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was filled with persecution, mockery, suffering, and ultimately death. To follow Christ means to walk in steps of persecution, mockery, and potentially death. The Christian life is never promised to be an easy one. In fact, it is promised to be difficult. Much of what is written in the New Testament addresses suffering, persecutions, hardships that Christians face specifically because of their faith. Sickness, disease, death. All these things are a result of living in a sin-cursed world. Suffering is very commonplace in this world. And as Christians, we are guaranteed our share of it. Because we live in a world that hated Christ and murdered Him. As Jesus said, they have hated me first, therefore they will hate you. To paraphrase His his words. The hatred the world has for us is because we are in Christ. And so again, tracing Jesus' footsteps, following His example as a true follower of Christ, it will lead to unjust suffering for Christians, for that is where His steps led. Comfort and Christianity are usually incompatible. If we imitate Christ, we will suffer. And as such, we need to learn to suffer as He did leaving us an example to follow. This is also partially what Peter meant when he stated earlier in verse 19 to be mindful of God. What has Christ done for us? And what is the example that he has set for us? It sounds hard, this assurance of suffering and hardship. It's difficult. And it's something that we don't want to sometimes fully believe. But God doesn't leave us hanging there. And I think it's very important to understand why Peter opens and begins this epistle. He he begins this letter by pointing to Christ, by pointing to the hope that we have in Christ. Blessed be the God, verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter begins this letter with such a strong appeal to this salvation and to the work that God has accomplished through Christ on our behalf. This living hope 
this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. If you are a child of God, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you by God himself. And this is the hope that we have. This is what carries us through and sustains us as we face sufferings, persecutions, though the world could take everything from us, throw us into prisons, lead us off to our death. This inheritance they cannot touch because it is kept by God's power for you. This is the hope we have as we toil through this world and as we toil through this guarantee of hardship, sufferings, and persecution in this world. We find hope, this living hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for us. And as Peter says in our text this morning, and set an example for us. So when we face suffering, When we face cruelty, mistreatment at the hands of our masters, employers, society, institutions around us, Christ has set an example for us to follow. Verse 22 of second, uh, chapter 2. He, speaking of Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter is borrowing here from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 9. Isaiah wrote, He had done no violence, and here he is also speaking of the suffering servant. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Isaiah uses violence here not as a single act of violence, but to signify sin. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ, was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never responded to any situation or circumstance in a sinful way. That is an example that he has set for us. He is without sin. Jesus suffered and died at the hands of lawless men, yet he is without sin. He did not respond in a spiteful way. He did not react in any way which was sinful. And even deceit was not found in his mouth. Our hearts are often revealed through our mouths, through our speech. What is in the heart of man flows very easily out through the mouth, by our tongues. Yet even in this area where we as humans often struggle the most, our speech, Jesus was without sin. If we are to imitate him and suffer as he did, there is no excuse for us to respond in any sinful manner of behavior or speech. Peter goes on in verse 23, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. Peter repeated this in chapter 4, verse 19, as we read a little bit earlier as well. Where he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If we are suffering according to God's will, we are to entrust our souls to our faithful creator. This is the example that Jesus set in verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He did, he did not verbally threaten or lash out against those who were causing his suffering. Instead, Jesus faced his suffering and death with a blameless character. Isaiah records in verse chapter 53. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. I want you to read this with me. In Isaiah 53, verse 7. Listen to the prophet's word, speaking again of the suffering servant, prophesying of Christ and his suffering. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The natural thing for us to do in unjust circumstances is to lash out to those who we deem to be responsible for the suffering that we face. It is easy to fall into the trap of thinking we deserve better than this. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I don't deserve what happened to me. That is a mindset that we so easily have. It is a mindset of the flesh where we think more highly of ourselves than what we ought to. Yet Christ, the only truly innocent man to have ever lived, faced the most wicked and cruel suffering at the hands of sinful man. And we read, did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten. This was Christ's response. This is the example we are to imitate. This is the pattern we are to trace in our lives. Will we fail? Many times. But we are to be mindful of this. Be mindful of God. Be mindful of the example that Christ has set. As we learn and as he serves to use these situations, to use the sufferings and mistreatments in our lives, and he uses them to sanctify us. God uses these situations and has orchestrated them and ordained them specifically to turn us and transform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So we don't expect perfect response to these things, a perfect following of this. We would like to, but we recognize we are still in the flesh 
And Jesus is the only one who has ever not sinned. So as we continually fall, we trust that the Lord is continually sanctifying us and making us more like Christ and more like his son every time that we endure these things. And so we turn to him and we repent for our sin and we thank him as a faithful God who forgives sin. And he forgives us for all the times we fall short. Christ did not revile in return. He did not threaten. This is the example we are to imitate. These are the foot, these are the footsteps put in front of us to trace. And as MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, as the sovereign omnipotent son of God and the creator and sustainer of the universe, Jesus could have blasted his cruel unbelieving enemies into eternal hell with one word from his mouth. Jesus could have cast instant judgment on every single person who ever mistreated him or broke any of God's laws, which would have been every one of us. Eventually, those who never repented and believed in him would be sent to hell. But for this time, he endured with no retaliation. And he did this to set an example for believers, end quote. Jesus endured his suffering to set an example for us. He endured with no retaliation, and likewise we are to strive to endure suffering with no retaliation. Jesus submitted to those who were causing his suffering, and while hanging on the cross, he even asked his Father to forgive them. That was his response to the most unjust treatment that has ever happened on this earth. When sinful, lawless man, creation, murdered the Creator. And Jesus kept his mouth shut like a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not revile. He asked the Father to forgive those who were killing him. And Jesus was able to do this, Peter says, by entrusting himself to the him who judges justly. Verse 23. Jesus entrusted, which means to commit or to hand over. He entrusted himself to God, himself to God and his perfect will and plan. You see, Christ knew all his suffering was according to the plan and will of God. And he trusted his hands into he, in, he, he entrusted himself into the hands of him who judges justly. Likewise, as Peter says, we are to entrust our souls into, our faith, into the hands of our faithful creator. What strengthened Jesus' acceptance of his unjust suffering that he faced was the unbreakable and the resolute confidence in the perfect plan of God and his ability to accomplish his will in all things. John 4.34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. And he knew the suffering was part of that. Jesus knew that God would vindicate him, and he knew that his suffering was all part of God's decretive will to accomplish his perfect plan of salvation. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John chapter 17, the verse 5 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Jesus accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. And that was his food. That is what gave life to him. That is what drove him, was to do the will of him who sent the one who sent him into this earth and to accomplish his work. And according to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, as we just read, Jesus Christ accomplished the work that the Father had sent him to do. And part of that was walking through the suffering that he had to face and that he had to endure. Jesus knew that even his suffering was for a purpose, for God to accomplish salvation. And so he entrusted himself to the God of the universe and trusted the sovereign plan of God to be accomplished and for God to be glorified in that. Paul says in Romans 8.28, All things work together for good for those who love the Lord. All things work together for good. Do we trust God in our suffering? Do we trust God when we are mistreated? When others sin against us? When they slander us? when they lie about you, when they mistreat you and beat you? Are you able to entrust your soul to the faithful Creator, to the One who works all things for good? Because in the same manner that Christ entrusted Himself to God, brothers and sisters, we are to entrust ourselves to the creator and sustainer of the universe in times of our suffering. We look to Jesus as our example when we face unjust suffering in our lives. We must not respond in any sinful manner for then we are as guilty as the one who is unjustly causing our suffering. It is so easy to respond in the flesh, especially when we feel that we've been slighted or that we've been wronged. But the moment we respond in a sinful manner, Brothers and sisters, we are as guilty as the one that we sinned against us. So rather, let us learn to trust our sovereign Lord who is, who in his good timing will judge justly. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. 
In this way, we imitate Christ's example by walking in his footsteps as we learn to suffer as Christ did as the ultimate suffering servant. Which next time, in verses 24 and 25, we'll see in Christ's position, his suffering led to our salvation. Our suffering does not lead to our salvation. It leads to our sanctification. But Christ is the ultimate suffering servant. His suffering, his death, led to our salvation. And we will see that next time. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your word, for the instruction that you have given us in your word. As we consider the suffering that may be produced through submitting to authorities that you have established in this world, we may face unjust persecutions and suffering, Lord, and I pray that you would help each one of us to be mindful of you, Lord, and to follow the footsteps that you have set before us. Jesus, and as you, when you were reviled, you did not revile in return. Lord, help us to follow that example. When you were without sin, you did not threaten. God, I pray that you would Help each one of us to see that and to place our focus ultimately on the salvation that you have provided and the result of your suffering, to find our encouragement in our suffering, to see that the result of your suffering led to our salvation. A salvation that we do not deserve and yet you have so freely and so richly provided for us. Help us to keep that inheritance as the foremost picture in our minds when life is difficult, when life is hard, when we are mistreated. And help us to respond to those who are mistreating us, Lord, with love, with grace. To reflect the gospel that we say we believe, Lord. Help us to entrust our lives to you in all things. Amen.